The American news media is calling out the Trump administration for telling lies, saying, damn it, that's our job. The feud began when the news media savaged the White House for saying the media lied when it was lying. And the White House responded by lying about the lies the media was lying about while the administration lied. The media then lied by saying that the administration was lying when it said the media was lying. And the administration struck back by lying about the media, which was lying. Anger erupted within hours of the new president taking office when a reporter for Time magazine lied that the Trump administration had removed a bust of Martin Luther King Jr. from the Oval Office. The reporter later apologized, saying the bust was still in the Oval Office, but he hadn't seen it there because he wanted black people to get angry and hate the new president, an innocent mistake. Presidential spokesman Sean Spicer responded by lambasting the press, saying President Trump would never remove the MLK bust from the Oval Office, that Trump had the utmost respect for the bust and had even marched with the bust in Selma in 1965 when they were set upon by dogs and other Democrats. Kellyanne Conway later went on Sean Hannity's show to clarify that while Trump had not actually marched with Martin Luther King Jr., he was himself a black man who had worked his way up from slavery to become a white billionaire, though he tried to retain a connection to his original race, which accounts for his orange color. There was further acrimony between the media and the administration when several news outlets disagreed with Trump about how many people had attended his inaugural address. The White House says that more than a million and a half people crowded into the National Mall to hear the speech. The media says there were only 15 people and seven of them were Secret Service agents, while the rest were homeless people who just happened to wander by. The media confirmed its accounts by releasing photographs of homeless people, while the administration struck back by releasing photographs of Wolf Blitzer in his underwear, photos shop next to a hooker with a rubber ducky and a whip. Blitzer then retaliated, saying that from now on, CNN would drop any pretense of objectivity and dedicate every minute of its airtime to attacking the new administration and making up stories about how awful it is. Blitzer later conceded that this was already CNN's policy. The war of lie versus lie promises to continue throughout the week, with the news media threatening a barrage of false stories to the effect that men can become women, that unborn babies aren't people, and man-made global warming is threatening to destroy the world. The Trump administration threatened to retaliate by announcing they are the most beloved administration since records of belovedment began being kept in the early hours of last night. Both sides retracted their threats, admitting they were all a bunch of lies. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, dipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. Hooray, hurrah. Here we are broadcasting from Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, tomorrow is the mailbag day. I will be back uh, in California tomorrow. So send in, if you are a subscriber and you pay your lousy eight bucks a month to the Daily Wire, you can send in your questions and I will answer them tomorrow in the mailbag segment. Answers are guaranteed 98.7% correct and even a higher percentage of that, that they will change your life possibly for the better. Okay, so I can, I'm here in Phoenix uh, to talk to a group of um 
Jewish Christians, Jews who have become Christians, they, they are going to interview me about my book, The Great Good Thing, which is about my own uh, conversion to Christianity, a memoir about my own conversion to Christianity. And I walk into this lovely hotel in Phoenix, and there seems to be a, a convention of Hasidic rabbis here. So I walked in, and the entire lobby was just covered with devout Jews. So I, uh, I texted my wife and asked her if she thought I should break the good news to them, but she told me not to and just go to my room. Uh, but anyway, there is lots of news uh, going on in the world. Uh, you know, yesterday uh, we were talking about the Trump administration. I felt they kind of got off. They had a little bit of a rocky start. I think they were a little bit thrown by suddenly finding themselves the most powerful people in the country. And uh, Kellyanne Conway made that slip about, you know, whatever it was, alternative facts and all this stuff. But now things are really changing. You know, we were talking about the kind of difference between the flesh of what the Trump administration does, what it actually does in policy, and the spirit of what they do. You know, when they, if they tell lies, if Trump goes off on any of his rants and all that stuff, and how much we have to support one to be in favor of the other. Because Trump had a, uh, he had a good day as far as I was concerned. He's instituted a federal hiring freeze, which uh, is far, that's great. I mean, if they would just add to the federal hiring freeze a federal firing spree, I would think that would be perfect, but it's really good except for the military. They're not going to hire more federal people with some limitations. Uh, the Mexico City policy that bans NGOs, uh, non-government organizations that are kind of charity organizations that the government supports. Uh, they have this Mexico City policy that prevents them from getting federal funds if they promote abortion. Uh, that sounds good, and it is good, but it's something that goes with every administration. The Democrats put it back in place. Uh, the Democrats take it off. Uh, the Republicans put it back in place whenever they come in. It's kind of a ping pong ball. Um, and my favorite was, my favorite thing, which didn't have directly to do with Trump, was that the Centers for Disease Control is scrapping their annual climate change conference uh, because they were concerned that the Trump administration would uh, squash the conference anyway. Uh, that one, I, I don't know, is it wrong to have feelings of sexual pleasure at that news? I'm not sure. I, I was personally really thrilled about it. Uh, and then there is um, the, oh, the Pacific trade partnership. Uh, Trump squashed that. And that's causing the, you know, the folks at the Wall Street Journal, all the business folks to go crazy because now you have this crazy spectacle of the president of communist China, uh, Xi Jinping, making speeches in support of free trade and the president of the United States killing what is supposed to be this big free trade agreement with all these Asian partners. But that is is actually not fair to Trump. Trump is, is saying something. He is saying that we're not being treated fairly, that we let goods in uh, for free, but China has all these restrictions on foreign, uh, on foreign uh, imports and things like that. So we're not getting a, a fair deal with them. And he wants to negotiate those deals country by country and these kind of uh, deals that deal with all these countries at once, he feels that we get screwed. So we'll see. We'll see if he uh, has something better in mind. A lot of people have raised a lot of objections to this uh, trade deal because of it. it carves out all these uh, special things for special countries. And he just feels we're not getting, you know, he had this meeting, Trump had this really interesting meeting with business leaders where he sat down, he could sort of see that these were his homies, you know, he's talking to all these guys who run businesses and telling him, he was telling him that things are going to get better, that if you want to start a business in America, it is going to be uh, easier to do because he's going to dial back the regulations in a big way. So that was the carrot. And then we'll talk about the stick. Let's first hear what Trump said. And you have to go through the process, but it's going to be expedited. And we're going to take care of the environment. We're going to take care of safety and all of the other things we have to take care of. But you're going to get such great service. There will be no country that's going to be faster, better, more fair, and at the same time, protecting the people of the country whether it's safety or 
uh, so many other reasons where regulations are good. We think we can cut regulations by 75%, maybe more, but by 75%. Have, in a certain way, better protections. But when you want to expand your plant, or when Mark wants to come in and build a big, massive plant, or when Dell wants to come in and do something monstrous and special, uh, you're going to have your approvals really fast. And I love I love the way he's talking to them. You know, he knows who these guys are. This is, you know, now he followed this up with the stick saying, if you leave the country and go to another place and manufacture there, we're going to tax you, your goods coming in to the country. And that's the stick. And that is something that a lot of people uh, are against. I've, I've always noticed that protectionism doesn't work. But if what he's talking about is equaling the protection on one side as it is on the other, then I don't know. That's a little bit of a different story, and we'll see how it works. I, as I say, he's a practical guy. I'm not really that worried about policies that uh, if they don't work, he will change them. He's not like Obama. That's that. So that is the, the flesh, as we say, of what he's doing. The spirit was on the other side with Sean Spicer. Sean Spicer got off to a rocky start when he went in and yelled at the press about the number of people at the inaugural. It was, uh, it was difficult to see uh, whether he was telling the truth, but he gave the press this excuse to say, oh, you were wrong and we were right, which is so rare with the press that there was absolutely no reason for it. So now he takes the stage for his first real press conference. And they were pretty, the press, the media themselves were pretty impressed because he stayed there and answered their questions. They were upset at first because he didn't go with protocol because he asked, he asked uh, questions of conservative outlets first, the New York Post, and I think the Christian Broadcasting Network, I think, was the other one. Usually you start with the Associated Press. As far as I'm concerned, he can do that all day long. That is just great. He should do much more of that. But then it's, there was this exchange with Jonathan Carl from ABC who challenged Spicer this way. The nature of your job. Yeah. Is it your intention to always tell the truth from that podium and will you pledge never to knowingly say something that is not factual? It is. It's an honor to do this. And uh, yes, I believe that we have to be honest with the American people. I think sometimes we can disagree with the facts. There are certain things that um, we may miss, we may not fully understand when we come out. But our intention is never to lie to you, Jonathan. Um, our job is to make sure that sometimes, and you're in the same boat. I mean, there are times when you guys tweet something out or write a story and you publish a correction. That doesn't mean that you were intentionally trying to deceive readers and the American people, does it? And I think we should be afforded the same opportunity. There are times when we believe something to be true or we get something from an agency uh, or we act in haste because the information available wasn't complete, but our desire to communicate with the American people and make sure that the most complete story at the time. And so, so we do it. So this is kind of nonsense. Carl asks him, will you pledge never to lie? You know, when C Jimmy Carter took office, he pledged, he said, I will never lie to you. And I believe he was speaking to the press or the people. And the press just went to town on him. They beat the crap out of him because, of course, presidents lie. Everybody, you know, the, everybody in politics has to lie at times. And Sean Spicer is going to tell lies. So that was kind of like, it was kind of a bogus question. They were just trying to get him on this, you know, on their, bring him down to their level. But Spicer then delivered when they started in, because this whole thing, they're arguing about this meaningless thing about how many people were uh, at Trump's inaugural as opposed to Obama's inaugural, which is doubly meaningless because, of, you know, first of all, Obama's a popular guy, but second of all, Washington is a, is a blue city. Washington is filled with Obama supporters. It was an historic moment and all this stuff. But Spicer now gets to the 
to the point. The media is trying to keep control of the na- narrative. Their basic proposal, as I said in my opening, is it's their job to lie, and the president is not allowed to lie back. And Spicer really delivers. He really gives them a speech that should have been made a long time ago by another Republican president. Let's hear that speech. There is this constant theme to undercut the enormous support that he has. And I think it's just unbelievably frustrating when you're continually told it's not big enough, it's not good enough, you can't win. And, 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 hold on, let me just, because I, I think it's important. He's gone out there and defied the odds over and over and over again. And he keeps getting told what he can't do by this narrative that's out there, and he exceeds it every single time. And I think there's an overall frustration when you op- when you turn on the television over and over again and get told that there's this narrative that you didn't win, you weren't going to run, you can't pick up this state, that's not, you know, that that's a fool's errand to go to Pennsylvania. Why is he in Michigan? How silly. They'll never vote for him. A Republican hasn't won that state since 88. And then he goes and he does it. And then what's the next narrative? Well, it must have been because of this. He didn't win that. And then, oh, people aren't attending your thing. Or John Lewis is, is the first person to skip his inauguration. Not true. And over and over again, the MLK bust, I think over and over again, there's this constant attempt to undermine his credibility and the movement that he represents. And it's frustrating for not just him, but I think so many of us that are trying to work to get this message out. And, and, it's, and, and so I mentioned this to Jonathan, but part of this is a two-way street. Like, we, we, want to, we want to have a healthy dialogue, not just with you, but with the American people. Because he's fighting for jobs, he's fighting to make this country safer. But when you're constantly getting told that can't be true, we doubt that you can do this, this won't happen. And that's the narrative when you turn on television every single day. It's a little frustrating. That is great. I've been waiting for a Republican to say that to the press forever. They kind of say it in this whiny little way. They go on TV and say it. But this, if this administration holds the press to account, they're going to change things. Because look what's happening on the other side, all right? We're talking about the narrative. And I know I, I hammer this home, but it's so important. The narrative creates this tide, this current that sweeps people's thoughts away. This is, as I've said before, this is why George Washington couldn't, it took him a long time to understand the true evil of slavery. As much as he was in favor of liberty, the intellectual current of his time swept him away, even as great a man as Washington. Same thing with abortion. People today, there was an article in the Atlantic saying how evil ultrasound was because women didn't want to have an abortion after they saw their baby, because they don't want, the the left does not want reality to... the place of the narrative or for there to be a narrative involving reality. So let's go back to see what's happening on the other side and why it's such a crisis. Because this women's march that the press is saying was such a wonderful thing, you know, and the press is, is calling it the beginning of a movement, and it's, it's the end. It is the end. That was one of the great PR disasters for the left of all time because it showed you that their narrative is gone. We're going to get to that in a minute. i got to say goodbye to the folks uh, on Facebook and YouTube. But come on over to thedailywire.com and subscribe. It's a lousy eight bucks a month. Subscribe, and you can uh, be on the mailbag. Okay, so our pal Steve Crowder, very, very funny guy, (laughs) went out to the Uh, women's march. Of course, he dressed up as a woman. And for those of you who can't see this, uh, Steve is like built like a linebacker. I mean, he lifts weights. He's into martial arts. He's huge. Okay. So he's this big muscular guy in a pink dress with a wig. And 
he calls himself Stephanie. And he goes out and he asks the crowd, you know, what what do you what is the real threat? Why are you so exercised against Donald Trump? What is the real threat coming from Donald Trump? And watch, they have no answer. But as far as policy, what should we all be most concerned about with this march with Donald Trump and uh, this administration? To you. To you. To me. Like the rights. Specifically to your community or in general? You know, I think personally the in the imminent challenges that are kind of up, like projected or forecasted for the com- com- country as overall like oh my gosh. Well, can I-, I think that the biggest concern for me is just this idea that this administration has a right to tell any of us what we can do with our bodies, right. what we can wear on our bodies, right. what we can uh, say about our bodies. Right. I guess I have multiple answers to that. Okay. And and that is our choice, not theirs, and it's not theirs to tell. What well, we can us what wear is certainly do. not fashion advice from Mike Pence. <laughs> no. <laughs> you gotta see what what Crowder looks like when he says this. No fashion advice from Mike Pence, and he's wearing this kind of red pullover thing and a pink pullover thing and a pink cap, and he's you know six feet tall and all that. It's hilarious. But so that, that's the thing. They don't want fashion advice from Mike Pence. One of them finally comes up with. They're afraid that abortion is going to become a felony. Uh, this is a joke because if Roe v. Wade were repealed, as I hope one day it will be, because it's not a constitutional decision, but if it were repealed, it would just fall back to the states, and the states are going to do what the states do. New York is going to have different laws than Tennessee, as it should be. Those people have different uh, cultures and different opinions, and they should have different laws. So he finally gets to Wendy Davis. You know what? I'm going to just skip over that, because even she doesn't have anything. But the the speech that really told the story was actress Ashley Judd's speech. This is one of the, it is a signature moment of the left. I think the speech should be played in college classes. Uh, It is an amazing, amazing statement of leftist insanity. And I'm no psychiatrist. I I do not have a professional degree, but I thought I was looking at a person who was seriously, uh, had serious problems. So here is Ashley Judd. First, she starts talking about blacks. And what you'll notice here is that all the civil rights ills that used to exist in this country still exist in the narrative. Blacks are still in shackles and graves just for being black. Slavery has been reinterpreted as the prison system in front of people who see melanin as animal skin. I am not as nasty as a swastika painted on a pride flag. And I didn't know devils could be resurrected, but I feel Hitler in these streets. A mustache traded for a toupee. Nazis renamed the cabinet electroconversion therapy, the new gas chamber shaming the gay out of America, turning rainbows into suicide notes. God. So the gas chambers are shaming the gays who I, I notice I notice how what a quiet presence gays have in America. <laughs> They're so shamed. They're hunted down. You know, they, and by the way, Trump, again, most 
pro-gay president ever to be elected because Obama was against gay marriage when he was elected. So most pro-gay, uh, certainly most pro-gay Republican ever to be elected. What in earth is she talking? And all those blacks were in prison for being black. You know, that's what happens. The police pull you over and say, freeze, you're black, you know, drop, drop your blackness. That's that is how those guys got in prison. <laughs> you know, that's, so it's this complete, complete, you know, people ask me, people ask me why the left so dominates the arts. And for a long time, I thought it was just the blacklist because they do blacklist us. There's just no question about it in Hollywood. Even in publishing, they blacklist us. Anybody who comes out for Trump now is being told they can't get parts in movies and things like this. So they really do put a chill on conservative speech in the arts. But that's not really why. There, there are two strains of thought in the West one is they are re they're represented by the meeting of Jesus and Pontius Pilate. Jesus says, I speak the truth, and those who want to hear the truth hear my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? Implying that there's no such thing as truth. The truth is relative, that morality is relative. And, and those are the two strains that have been through the West, even before Jesus' time. But after Jesus, of course, there was the Catholic Church with a monopoly on truth. And after that monopoly fell apart, this dialogue has started up again. One side really does believe comes out of a philosophy, even if they don't know that philosophy, it comes out of a Nietzschean philosophy that there is no ultimate truth because God is dead. And if there's no ultimate, ultimate truth, it's only power that establishes the narrative. It's the powerful who establish the narrative and the narrative becomes the truth. The narrative becomes that slavery is okay in George Washington's time and it becomes that abortion is okay in our time and therefore it is okay. There is no higher morality above the narrative. We on the right, you hear Ben saying all the time that facts don't care about your feelings. We think that facts establish the truth, which by the way is also only partly true, okay? Because the human experience is not, is a fact in and of itself. It, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to reduce it to the term feelings. It's not feelings. It's the entire human perception, internal perception of the world. So we have one side that believes in facts and the other side that believes entirely in narrative. Who's going to be better at telling stories? The side that believes that narrative is everything, the side that is telling stories for its life. But these stories are starting to fall apart. The facts do catch up with the, the, the stories eventually. And maybe we're getting a little bit better at telling facts in stories. Maybe we're getting a little bit better than that. Because ultimately, ultimately, what Ashley Judd is unhappy about is reality. I want to make sure we get the uh, right cut here because this is just an amazing speech. She's making this thing. Remember Trump called uh, Clinton a nasty woman. So now the thing is, I am a nasty woman. I am a nasty woman. But it, the, the one that I'm looking for is cut number six. So we are not here to be debunked. We are here to be respected. We are here to be nasty. I'm nasty. Like my blood stains on my bed sheets, we don't actually choose if and when to have our periods. Believe me, if we could, some of us would. We don't like throwing away our favorite pairs of underpants. Tell me, why are pads and tampax still taxed? Ooh, that was a brand name. Why are tampons and pads still taxed when Viagra and Rogaine are not is your erection really more than protecting the sacred messy part of my womanhood? Is the blood stain on my jeans more embarrassing 
than the thinning of your hair. First of all, just just as a fact check, yes, my erection is more important than anything. That's just just to get, deal with the fact. But I mean, she's arguing with reality. She's arguing about that taxes, that medicine isn't taxed, and and objects are, you know, and all this. And she, but that first line, we're not here to be debunked. We're here to be respected. In other words, we're not here to deal with the facts. We're here to deal with this narrative that's in our head. And what is it? What is it that Trump has done? What Trump has done is he has been a he has said things about women that were caught on the, remember that tape about grabbing women by the crotch and all this stuff. And that has really set women off. It has really set them under threat. But where does that come from? Where does Donald Trump come from? You know, let, let's just look a, a minute. Here are these women who are so upset about what Donald Trump said. But think about the music that the, that women are creating. Think about Beyonce. L listen to this. If you can hear it, I'll read the lyrics afterwards. But listen to Beyonce singing this this song, which is I think called uh, what's it called? Check on it. Check on it. Yeah. Stop playing around with all the clowns and the wanksters. Good girls gotta get down with the gangsters. Go ahead, girl, put some back and some neck up on it. While I stand up in the background and check up on it. Okay, so that is Bun B is the rapper in that, and Beyonce. Okay, Beyonce, very extraordinarily talented woman, Beyonce, and that, and one of the most obvious, one of the most popular pop stars, singing to what? You've got to be teenage girls, right? Here's the lyrics. You need to stop playing around with all the clowns and the wanksters. Good girls got to get down with the gangsters. Go ahead, girl, put some back and some neck up on it while I stand up in the background and check up on it. In other words, I'm going to be looking at you, looking you over. Ooh boy, now the girl sings, ooh boy, you're looking like you like what you see. Won't you come over and check up on it? I'm going to let you work up on it. Ladies, let them check up on it. Watch it while he check up on it. Dip it, pop it, twerk it, stop it. Check on me tonight. I mean, you know, and this and this is the same theme, by the way, is that immense hit blurred lines, which was basically, you know, you think you're a good girl, but, uh, you know, that the guy you went out with was a nice guy and he tried to domesticate you. But you're an animal. You know, that's the line. That's the line from the song. Baby, you're an animal. It's in your nature. Let me liberate you. Whereupon he says, I'm going to give you something big enough to tear your ass in two. OK, so this is the thing that's being sold to little girls. You know, this is the thing that is uh, creating their their narrative, their sense of what it is to be a woman. And then when Trump is created by this, you know, I'm not trying to be a prig. I'm not trying to tell anybody. I know there's aggression and, you know, uh, dominance and submission in sex. I know there's all these things that are exciting in sex. I'm not saying we shouldn't be in the arts, but these are things. This is this is like selling alcohol in sugared soda, right? This is like this is these are peddled specifically to young girls to create their impression of what it is to be a powerful woman like Beyonce. Is let them check up on it, twerk it, kirk it, you know, twerk it, shake it, let them come up on it. Trump is a creation of this. He, you know, you can't have a culture and then suddenly say, oh, but the president, only the president, is supposed to be. Uh, the guy who rises above this culture. You know, there's a, a Facebook page called J. Ernal Journal, and J. Ernal, and there's a poet there, and I don't know his name. I, you know, he, he, I couldn't find his name on the Facebook page, but he wrote this little poem. It's it's a little bit, I won't call it doggerel. It's better than that, but it's you know, it's a little bit kind of a poetry slam type poetry, where he talks about 
how the president is a creature of the narrative that the left has been creating, including shows like Friends, which taunted out of uh, wedlock, giving birth out of wedlock. It, it uh, uh, vaunted pornography. And he talks about all this. Let's play a little bit of this guy's poetry. But morality is relative, right? It only matters once every four years, and it only applies to the presidential candidate of the political party that you oppose. Because let me guess, we should hold the president to a higher standard than ourselves and our beloved pop culture idols and fetishes. But the thing is, presidential candidates come from the same vulgar, sexist, violent, sex-obsessed locker room society that we've curated. So why would it be so surprising and shocking when the cream of this crop rises to the top and is corrupt? And lo, the truth that was told 2,000 years ago was still true. You reap what you sow. In other words, there is no room to mourn when your high horse is a unicorn. It's pretty evident Donald J. Trump is who you voted for. Hashtag exactly your president. That's that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Basically, a creature of the left's narrative is now working against them. And the left is in crisis because their narrative is slipping away. It's very difficult for we on the right who believe in facts to watch Donald Trump play fast and loose with those facts. But in fact, Donald Trump is a master of narrative and he is using that narrative for good rather than evil. That's going to create some moral hazards for us along the way. But I got to say, so far, I like what he's doing, even when I don't always like what he says. All right, let's take a quick look at the Oscars. I mean, who cares? You know, when was the last time anybody had a conversation about a movie? When was the last time two people sat and discussed a movie and the ideas in the movie and what it meant and whether accurately reflected life? I mean, now you get together and talk about whether it was uh, true to the Star Wars, uh, you know, franchise or whether it really was a good addition to the Marvel universe and all this stuff. So the Oscars, I don't know, they just seem to be becoming um, obsolete in some way. And that is you can see by the nominee's arrival, decent little science fiction film, Fences. Uh, I, I hear that's good. Unfortunately, I, I've lost my screener. I'm still searching for it. I want to see it. Hacksaw Ridge was a pretty good picture, and it was a surprise that Mel Gibson got a Best Director nomi nomination. I suspect he won't. I don't think he'll win, but I suspect that's Hollywood saying, welcoming him back. Hell or High Water, a good film, but not many people saw it. Uh, Hidden Figures. Really, you know, I mean, La La Land, okay, fine. But again, nobody saw these pictures. Lion, Manchester by the Sea, I watched it. Talented film for maybe five people. You know, five people want to see that film. And Moonlight, another one, nobody wants to see it. So again, you know, it's it's not that Hollywood can't make good movies. It's not that they can't make popular movies. They just can't make good popular movies because they have divided themselves from the country. But, you know, the truth is that the creative urge, which moves from genre to genre, has now moved mostly to television. I think more people discuss TV and YouTube and uh, Facebook and social media um trolling uh, than they do movies. I, don't, I just don't think that movies are setting, um, you know, or forging the conscience of our race, as James Joyce once said, of, of poets and novelists. I don't think that movies are really doing that anymore. They may come back, but right now it's all getting kind of irrelevant. All right, stuff I like. And this week I'm talking about liberals I like. And as I mentioned uh, yesterday, uh, they're all dead. Uh, that may be why I like them so much. But uh, it's also because liberalism used to be something different. It used to be a patriotic attempt to liberalize the country, uh, which is a different thing than these people marching saying, uh, you know, America
America was never great, which is what the left is saying now, which is why they are alienating people and why marches like the Women's March are going to send people right into the Trump camp and ensure ultimately his reelection. Gregory Peck, a liberal I like, a guy who kind of he, he sort of uh, embodied the whole liberal ethos with To Kill a Mockingbird when he played, oh, what's his name? Finch. Thaddeus Finch, is that what it was? Anyway, that, the, the, To Kill a Mockingbird, if you, Atticus Finch, thank you. Um, if you watch To Kill a Mockingbird, it is the blueprint for all liberal movies. The scary guy in the house is really nice. The black guy is wrongly accused. The, you know, the entire structure of society is against him and all this. And of course, then it took place in the South. It was very accurate, very true, a real description of something that was happening. And, you know, it, it really was a, it's really a powerful story. It's a powerful novel. But the thing I like about Gregory Peck is that one of his best friends was Charlton Heston. The, his kind of if, if you will, his mirror image, you know, Charlton Heston, both of them very rock, rock, solid, handsome kind of guys who played big heroes. Uh, they weren't romantic heroes in the sense, when I say romantic, I don't mean in the sense of uh, being romantic toward women. I mean, they weren't romantic in the sense of being internal heroes, the way modern guys, Al Pacino, Peter O'Toole, uh, you know, Robert De Niro, these are all in Marlon Brando. These are all internal guys who play the mind. These were guys who played characters, larger than life characters and heroes, Gregory Peck and Charlton Heston. And when Gregory Peck, I can't find this uh, tape, I'm saying it from memory, but when Gregory Peck was asked uh, how he could be friendly with Charlton Heston, he said, he's my friend. I don't know why he believes the things he believes, and I'm sure he doesn't know why uh, I believe the things that I believe, but we are friends. And that was a, a, a that was an indication that the left had not yet left the country. It was an indication that liberalism was still an American movement. I don't think it any longer is. That's why George Soros, who hates America and wants to destroy it, was funding so much of that women's march. When liberalism was an American movement, even if you disagreed with it, that's not the point. If liberalism was an American movement, it could, of course, be friends with a conser with conservatives, because we were both working for a better America. We were both working, as Martin Luther King would say, to make sure that America lived out the meaning of its creed. You know, now that's not happening anymore. That's why these old liberals were sometimes so much better, classier, more decent human beings than the liberals you're seeing today. Gregory Peck, good actor. And if you've never seen To Kill a Mockingbird, it actually is a long but wonderful movie. All right, that's it for today. Tomorrow is the mailbag day. So if you subscribe, and you should subscribe, because look at you, look at your life. Come on, come on. On. Send in your questions. We will answer them all and solve all your problems. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show from lovely Phoenix, Arizona. I'll see you again in L.A. tomorrow.